Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. It is uh, the first Sunday of December, which means it is the start of Advent. And um, for those of you guys who are new to the church, but I know there's a few of you guys um, in this place who are um, just kind of checking this out and coming and seeing what uh, church and Jesus is all about. This is a time for us as the church for hundreds of years, we kind of stop and we have a kind of a season of preparation. We have a time to look inward towards our heart and to make sure that we are prepared for the reality of Emmanuel, which just means God with us. That God decided to not only exist in his heavenly realm, but chose to come and be with us through the person of Jesus. And that is a radical notion uh, that in us builds this anticipation of what, what does this mean for us? And you can imagine the uh, you can imagine the expectation that was in the hearts of the people of God as they waited and waited and waited for hundreds of years for this promise, this promise of the first advent, this promise that someone would come and bring redemption and wholeness as they had been living in a land of deep darkness, as Jessica just read. And so there's all sorts of speculation and wondering, what was this light that was about to dawn going to be like? Was he going to be a a militaristic leader that would come and overthrow Rome? Uh, Would it be a prophet? Would it be this or that? Um, And I remember when we were, uh, just found out we were pregnant with Zoe, our firstborn, where we have four kids, and there was immediately this sense of excitement and expectation, which is really the posture of Advent. And, and so we're, we find out we're pregnant. I'm running around the, like our 10 foot by 10 foot room in our little back house. Uh, we just got married and I'm so thrilled. And immediately I'm like, what does a Benji and Jen look like? You know, like what happens when you combine um, our DNA? What will it turn out to be? And then I found out I was a girl and I just prayed, Lord, please don't let it look like me. You know, look, it look more like Jen. And, and as, as Jen's womb grow and so did our expectation, we're like, who is this girl gonna be? And even after she was born, there's still an expectation of her heart as the kind of person that she'll turn into and develop into. And this is exactly the, the state of Israel at the time when Jesus arrived, is they have been pregnant with that expectation. They have been growing in their sense of anticipation and desire for redemption. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, it is a massive surprise. And so in order to capture this, we have four, le- or four books uh, in the scriptures called the Gospels, and they're biographies of the life of Jesus, told by four different people in four different ways. And so Matthew is the, kind of the first gospel. If you go about two-thirds through the Bible, and there's what starts the New Testament, which is marked by the life of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, he, he introduces us to this anticipated, uh, their word was Messiah or Mashiach, this promised anointed one this light that was going to dawn. And he introduces us through a genealogy, which is a very Jewish way to introduce someone, which would not work today. You know, have you guys ever noticed that movies used to start with credits? 
you know, for the first five minutes in a really slow song and some pictures. And nowadays you start with like an explosion, right? As a people, we're like, come on, give us the good stuff. Well, Matthew's kind of the old school way. He starts off with the genealogy, which probably most of you guys have just skipped right over. But even within the genealogy, I would encourage you, if you just want to go back and just study about the names that are listed, it's incredibly scandalous. The fact that Matthew because um, in most, most Jewish genealogies, you would choose the most prolific males, not every male from every kind of going down the line, but the ones who had kind of notable status, and that would be your genealogy. Well, Matthew doesn't do that. He kind of collects uh, this hodgepodge of people, um, not just males, but male and female, people with incredibly kind of broken, tattered pasts and scandal. And he looked at this whole genealogy and says, this is where Jesus comes from. It's really kind of cool, nuanced way to introduce Jesus to the world. And then we have Mark's gospel. And Mark's a little bit more of the modern approach. He just actually doesn't even talk about the birth. He just goes immediately right into John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus. And then there's Luke, who's a historian, who talks about every detail and talks about the shepherds and what's happening before in the culture and when Jesus comes and, and all these different details. And it's incredible. But then, but then there's John. And John is where we're going to be following the Advent story, the Christmas story this year. And John does a completely different take on the arrival of the Messiah. And he does that by not focusing on the, the, the very specific details, but by going for a 30,000 foot level, he tells the cosmic story. Both are beautiful. Luke and Matthew's account of all the details and the intricacy of Jesus being born of a virgin in, in a manger in, in, this, in these probably rocky hills in Bethlehem, they're important and they tell a beautiful story. But John's gospel kind of gets dismissed because it's not the Christmas story, but the reality is it is. It's just a different kind of Christmas story. It's the cosmic Christmas story. It's, it's telling of what Jesus has done at a universal level. And he does this in this masterful way. And one of the reasons why he does it so differently is because John writes his gospel last. He writes this in, most scholars think about 90 AD. So this is after the other three gospels have been written, the other biographies of life of Jesus have been written. And so a lot of who Jesus uh, came to be believed in the early church was already being circulated around through these documents. But through that became this debate. Jesus was the Messiah, yes, but was he divine? That was kind of the debate of that day. Was he, with him being the Messiah, did it actually mean he was the son of God? And some people said, yes, absolutely, he's the son of God. And some people said, no, he's the Messiah, he's a prophet, he's the fulfillment of the prophecy, but he's not divine. And so John writes his gospel to lay waste to any argument about that. And he opens up his gospel with this loud pronouncement about the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God. And he does it in this incredibly poetic way. But before we dive into those words, I want to actually fast forward to the end of John's gospel because he actually tells us why he wrote his whole book. And he does this by saying in John chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus per performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may, and here it is, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I want to start at the end and say the whole goal of this Advent series, the whole goal of John's writings will be to produce belief in you because that belief will produce life. 
And so as we leave today and the next few Sundays, and as long as we're going to be studying John, the goal is that we would all begin to realize that we were not just meant to exist, but to live life and life to the full. That's why John wrote his gospel. It's why he tells the story of Jesus the way he does, is that for him, there's an end goal here, and that is life. And we'll talk about that in a second. But let's, let's dive into our text this morning. This is in John chapter 1 starting uh, verse one and through verse five, and we're gonna be reading John's version of the Christmas story. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So immediately, uh, this opening grabs the reader's attention, specifically ancient Jewish ones, because of the way it starts. It starts with this word, in the beginning. Uh, Sound familiar? This is the way Genesis starts. John is drawing a parallel that the beginning of his story is connected to the beginning of Earth's story, that they're one and the same. Uh, Friedrich Bruner, who's a commentator on this, says this, in the beginning was the word. Whoever begins a book with the words in the beginning has a high view of oneself and or of one's subject of composition. The three English words in the beginning translate the first and single word for Hebrew scripture's opening book. Heard in three syllables in the opening lexium, Bereshith. Bereshith became Israel's name for the first book of Moses, Genesis. But whereas the first book of the Hebrew scriptures began early enough with the divine doing in the beginning God made, the fourth gospel declares the beginning with the divine being in the beginning was. John presumes to go behind and beyond creation to what and to who preceded it. So John has this audacious start, that he's not only going back to Genesis, but according to Bruner, beyond Genesis. So he's saying, hey, I'm not going to start my story with this with a stable and a manger. I'm going to start my story before creation even begins. And it begins with Logos, which we'll talk about here in a second. But let's just, let's just pause right here and just realize the Christmas story does not begin with a manger. It begins at creation. This is where Advent begins. It has to begin at the beginning. So we're, I'm going to give you kind of our three, our three points this morning that we're going to be walking through in this passage that John gives us. Number one, we're going to talk about logos, the word for word that he uses here as the introduction to who Jesus is. Secondly, we're going to talk about this phrase, life that we mentioned earlier on and talk about that this is the intention of Jesus's mission on earth is to bring life. Thirdly, we're gonna reference his, his ending phrase when he starts talking about light as this invasion into darkness. So logos, life, and light will be kind of our focuses this morning. But let's begin with logos. In the beginning was the word, was the logos, and the word was with God. Um, John is brilliant Uh, he might have even had some help from the Holy Spirit here. (laughs) As he starts off, that's a joke, of course, this is God's word that was breathed, but um, 
But he's brilliant here because he, he takes a concept that would have been familiar to both his Greek audience and Jewish audience and ties it together in this masterful way. You see, um, in Greek philosophy, about 500 years before this point, a philosopher named Heraclitus begins to start talking about logos uh, in a certain way and kind of, a, kind of ascribes it to this godlike force and he references it to this fixed principle in a world of change. So for Heraclitus, he starts talking about in all of the changing in the world, there is this constant force, and he calls it logos. As a couple hundred years go on, Stoic philosophers, Plato, pick up on this concept, and they begin to start defining it as the, as the one animating power that controls the ordered world. Kind of sounds like Star Wars' use of the force, doesn't it? It's this animating power that controls and orders the known world. It's this incredibly beautiful thing. You know what it is, but you don't. You can describe it, but you can't see it. It's the logos. Well, um, Philo, who's a Jewish philosopher in the same time of all this, begins to start taking this and he ascribes it to Yahweh. And he starts saying, no, the Logos is actually Yahweh. He is that powerful animating force that controls everything that goes on in this world. And in the Hebrew scriptures, um, if, if you translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they would use the word Logos to describe the word of God, specifically when that word was creating something. Or think about the verse, and the word of God will go out and not return void. According to John, when he opens it up, this is a reference not just to the scriptures, but to Jesus himself. Jesus will go out and not return void. And so when John opens up with this word, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, this immediately starts off with a bang. The logos, Jesus, is ascribing to this. He is that forceful, ordering glue that holds everything together. But he goes beyond that and he says that this Logos was with God and was God. And this is where we see John's layout of not only Christology, but of the Trinity, that this is not just a God, this is a relational being. Uh, the word was with God could literally be translated was faced towards God, yet was God. And this is where there's other kind of faiths that have a hard time with this, like, wait a minute, but for the Christian faith, this describes the Trinity. This is why this makes sense, why John would describe it this way. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the church in Colossae when he describes the same sort of um, preeminent power that Jesus has when he says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created, here it is, through him, and for him, he is before all things in him, and in him all things hold together. So let's just get to the point here. The reason why John starts his gospel off with the concept of logos, and the reason we're starting our Advent series with the idea of logos, is that we leave here today with a higher view of Jesus. He grabbed the most, the strongest vocabulary he could to grab his readers' attentions, to lift up their expectation of who Jesus was, and that's what we should be doing today. 
Jesus is more than you could ever imagine, more powerful, more loving, more present. He has created everything, including you, not just for your existence, but for his own glory. He has created you for himself, by himself. And this is how John opens up his his narrative of the beginning of Jesus' life and our awareness of him. He's the Logos. Um, Bruno also describes, I think this is kind of brilliant, is the power of logos, the power of the word to something. If, if you guys ever been in, in an argument, hypothetically, let's say Jen was mad at me, which never happens much, and, and she comes up with this phrase where, she, and I immediately say, I'm like, well, what did I do? And she looks at me, she's like, oh, you know what you did. And have you guys ever heard that before? Oh, you know. You know what? You know why I'm angry. And immediately I'm like, oh, this is not good. Like, not only did I do something wrong, I don't even know that I did something wrong. And now I am at the mercy of what? Her word. Because I don't know what's going on in her head, even though I should, apparently. Um, Is that I'm relying on her words to define what's going on inside of her emotion. Well, Bruno describes this is, this is what Jesus did for us in our relationship with God. For hundreds of years, people had speculated and grasped or, or kind of uh, grappled with the idea, of who is God? What's he like? Is he like this? Is he like this? And then John says, no, we now have the visible representation of an invisible God. We have the audible representation of an inaudible God. We have Jesus. What's God like? He's like Jesus. And through this glorious, magnificent uh, understanding of Jesus being this great and this divine and this powerful, something should happen inside of us. And that looks like dependence. It looks like peace. It looks like rest. Because if Jesus is the Logos, and no matter how chaotic the world goes, I can rest that he's the Logos. He's ordering it all. And even when things feel in disarray and dark, he's the light. And even when things feel like death, I know that he's life. This is a powerful pronouncement of the birth of Jesus. I've been thinking recently, I've been sharing with a couple of you guys, this is understanding that my job as a dad is to move my children from, from uh, dependence to independence. Right, right now we're working on my son getting him potty trained because it's embarrassing now. It's gonna only get more embarrassing. Right, when he shows up in middle school, you know, high school, he hasn't figured this out yet. When he gets married, he's like, oh, it's just a thing. You know, don't worry about it. Like, it's just gonna create problems. Our job as a parent is to move him. Um, I got to be around, we've had um, quite a few babies in the past month here at Light Church. It's been amazing. And getting to go, and Jen and I have been visiting all these newborn babies. Isn't, isn't it amazing when you watch like their little arms move? They have no control of it. They kind of hit themselves like in the head. And they can't, they're so dependent on their parents. And over the next 18 years, you're walking them through this process of, of independence. We're moving you from dependence to independence. Our spiritual walk is the opposite. You see, we're introduced to Jesus. And John introduces him in such a way that we are not to move from dependence to independence. We are supposed to be moving from independence, being introduced to Jesus. And over time and maturity and sanctification, we move into dependence on him. 
And this, is, and this is where we are left with today is this high view of Jesus draws into a place. And I look at this, I'm like, do I believe Jesus is the logos? This powerful, animating, creative force that controls the chaos when I feel like I'm out of control? Do I really believe that? And the answer is not all the time. But I'm drawn again, once again, in my Advent season to remember the power that Jesus has. But John goes a step further When he starts describing him in verse four, he says, in him, in the logos, in this powerful force that Jesus is, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Now, John does something interesting here because there's three Greek words for life that he could have chose to use. The first word is the word bios. Um, This word for life is used in Luke 8, 14. It says anxieties and riches and pleasures of this bios, of this life. And that's where you get our word biology. It just means existence. Then there's suke, and it's used in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save his life or soul shall lose it. Whoever wants to save their suke, which is where we get our word psychology, We'll lose it. So we have biology and psychology as common Greek understandings of life. But that is not the two words that John uses to portray what Jesus is bringing. He uses the word zoe. And John 1, 4 says, in him was zoe, and the zoe was the light of men. Zoe is an interesting Greek word that is most commonly used coupled with the word eternal. Eternal life, eternal zoe. It's not talking about a time frame. It's talking about a quality a quality of life that's a God kind of life, an abundant, rich, fulfilling, vibrant kind of life. This is why Jesus came. It's what John says at the beginning beginning of his gospel and the end of his gospel. This is the mission of Jesus, that he would come and bring this zoe, abundant, fulfilling, eternal life to move us away from just existing or just thinking and being into a place of being alive, truly alive. In John chapter 10, it says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have zoe and have it to the full. This is it. When Jesus talks about himself as a good shepherd, he says, "This this is why I'm here. I want you to experience life like you never had before. And by the way, this is, not a, this is not a new gospel notion that we see in the New Testament. We see this in Genesis chapter one. Again, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see the tree of life translated as the, as the tree of Zoe. This tree of this life, this abundant life existed in the garden with the logos. When he created things, he created it with life in the beginning. And so when Jesus shows up as the creator later on, what does he bring? The same life. And then at the very last chapter of the scripture, guess what we see again? The tree of life. Revelations 22, 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of Zoe. This abundant life marks the beginning and the end. And right in the middle of it, Jesus shows up as a light that is dawning in a dark place. And he says, I've come to bring this life here and now. 
I mean, isn't this what Jesus did everywhere that he went? He would perform miracles. He would, he would go and he would see a blind person and bring sight. He would see a social outcast like a leper or a prostitute and bring them into community. He would see someone dead and he would draw them into resurrection life. And this is just what he did. Tim Keller says this, Christ's miracles were not the suspension of natural order, but the restoration of natural order. They were a reminder of once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death, disease, and conflict. This is what Jesus did. He brought Zoe life everywhere that he went. And we think of it as a miracle. And Jesus says, no, this is just who I am. This is, this is actually more natural than the unnatural, broken, flawed, sinful world that you inhabit now. And I've come to remind you of life. I've come to give you life. John Foreman, who's a songwriter here in Encinitas, uh, has this amazing quote describing this. And he says, just as drowning cannot be equated with swimming, mere existence is not the same as abundant life. We have been offered a new way to live, a new way to be human. Have you ever met someone who has abundant life? Probably kind of annoy you sometimes, right? They're so joyful, you're like, really? You guys know those people. They're not, there's not many of them, but you probably know what I'm talking about. Those people, you're like, wow, man, you're just really, they probably work it in and out. You know, like they're just like, gosh, how do you have so much pep all the time? I'm not really sure how that works. Um, and I'm not talking about like the sanguine type seven kind of personality. I'm talking about there's just there's certain people that you're like, gosh, I don't know how you do it, but there's life bubbling up inside of you. Um, I was asking Jen, I was like, I'm like, who do we know that like just, just exudes abundant life? And, and she brought up someone I was thinking about as well was um, our neighbor, our old neighbor when we lived in Escondido, um, this guy named Jasmine. And I remember the first time we met Jasmine, she came into our life and she was full of Zoe abundant life. And we're like blown away. She would just make us smile. She would laugh at all the jokes no one else would laugh at, right? Make you feel good about yourself. Just be pouring out scripture, super helpful. Just brought like palpable joy into every room that she went into. She would ride her bike. She couldn't drive at the time. She'd ride her bike to Trader Joe's, fill it up with groceries and show up at our door randomly. She's like, I got you milk. And we're like, wow, we're lactose intolerant, but thank you. Like just, she just couldn't help herself. She's just abundant life everywhere she went. But what really kind of accentuated this, this life was when we found out that she was very close to death. From a young child, her liver was failing and she was the recipient of a, of, of a liver transplant. And she would show us pictures of her when her skin and her eyes were yellow and she's at, she was moments away from dying before she gets this transplant. And even after the transplant, she's been in and out of the hospital. And it makes the, the contrast and this juxtaposition so apparent that here is this is this beautiful little girl, and again, she's in her 20s now, but the way she lived was so alive that you, you were changed by it. It was this Zoe life that not even transplants and liver disease could rob her from. And it doesn't mean there weren't times when she was depressed or confused or sad or anxious, but it's meant that through all that, she continued to cling to Christ in such a way that pumped life into her body and her soul. 
One more story. There is another friend of mine who was here last service. Um, I got a phone call from him a few years ago and he said, hey, Benji, I want to let you know I'm going to be um, dropping out of college for a little while. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, my, my dad's really sick and they're only giving him a couple months to live. And um, a little backstory. Um, my, my friend Josh, he gave me permission to share this story. Uh, grew up in an incredibly awful house. His dad was abusive um, physically, um, and his, that physical abuse was driven by alcoholism. So Josh moved, lived, was homeless, lived on his own from the time he was 15, 16 years old. I met him when he was about 18 or 19. And uh, we've become very close since that moment. And I remember when his dad had a massive stroke because of the alcoholism. And I remember that doing all sorts of things inside of Josh. Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be sad. I don't know if I'm supposed to be angry or if I feel justified. And so when I got a call from Josh, he said, hey, my dad's in the hospital. He's gonna be dying. I'm just gonna be spending the last few months just sitting with him. I was like pretty blown away. And a couple months later, I get another phone call from Josh and he's like, hey, my, my dad passed away. And I'm like, I'm like, what was that like? And he's, and he, he was telling me, he's like, no one visited him once. And he just, I remember him telling me, he's like, I just wanted my dad to know that someone loved him. And I was like, <laughs> so I remember walking where I was on the phone, I started weeping. I'm like, how do you do that? How, wh- how, why? How would you spend months of your life on the bedside of your father who's dying of his alcoholism that gave you bruises growing up? What would compel you to do that? And he said, I don't know, other than the fact that this is what Jesus has done for me. And all I knew how to do was to go and do this for my dad. And that changed me. It shaped me. And, and Josh would be the first to tell you, like Jasmine, no, th- these aren't perfect people. These aren't people without flaws and their own things that they're going through. These are just people that have encountered the life of Jesus in such a radical way that they are different. And I think this is what Jesus was talking about. And John, when he started to write, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's it's one of my favorite verses. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And you think about a room, have you ever been in a room that's been lit up and you open the door into a hallway or a room that's dark, uh, you never are like, whoa, here comes darkness, right? You never see this influx of darkness. You never see the light go dimmer in that room. What you see is that space that was dark is now infused with light that it wasn't before. Darkness does not have the ability to take away light. Darkness does also not have a choice but to yield to light. And this is why Jesus came as this analogy in John chapter eight, verse 12 says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. This is our promise. This is what... This is what we get to experience, and this is the invitation of Jesus, is that this light gets to not only be existence within the source of it, Jesus, but it gets to be extended to us, and how we live begins to look illuminated by this light. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to go around and say, look at what I'm doing. You know, I'm awesome. Do you see my light? You know, it just, just comes out of you naturally. Dwight Moody says this, we are told to let our light shine, and if it does, We won't need to tell anybody it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. I love that. I was studying this week um, about the effects of light and and how we interact with light. Um, And I came across some really interesting things about diamonds. Uh, Diamonds interact with light in a unique way because entering light photons quickly get bogged down It takes a lot of pinging back and forth in a thicket of carbon atoms to find an exit. This action is what gives diamonds their dazzling sparkle. So in a sense, when light enters into a diamond, because of the carbon and the photons, it has a hard time exiting it. So it builds its intensity. And so when it leaves, it's what creates why diamonds shine the way they do, is because it absorbs and contains light in such a way that when it leaves, it's more brilliant. And as I was studying about that, I was thinking, what a great analogy for who we're supposed to be. To posture our life, maybe not with extensive carbon, but maybe with prayer, maybe with a slower pace, maybe with contemplation, maybe with serving, maybe with love, maybe in such a way that when the light of Jesus comes into us, it magnifies and intensifies because we've captured it for a while. And then what happens inside of us is that we begin to exude that light to the world because it has become so much a part of who we are. I'm gonna invite um, Matt up here if he's in the room. And as we get ready to end this morning, I want us to draw our attention to why this is even possible The reason why this light is in existence today is because this light became submitted and sacrificed to darkness itself. I'm talking about Jesus on the cross. I mean, think about this. The creator, the logos of the entire world was nailed By metal stakes, he created the metaphor on a piece of wood that he spoke into existence by human beings that he thought up that the light of the world came to darkness because he so desired for you to experience the light and life that he brought. This is why we get to stand here today with hope. This is why we celebrate Advent because light has come and darkness could not overcome it. I want to read you some of my favorite lyrics from a modern hymn called In Christ Alone. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's cursed has lost his grip on me. For I am his and he is mine. 
bought with the, brush, the, the precious, precious blood of Christ. Will you stand to your feet with me? Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.